God, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word, and that, God, there's a lot going on in our lives and in the life of our church, and yet, God, I pray that you'd help us to focus on what is most important, and that is you, Jesus. So, God, we want to see Jesus for all that he is in this passage. God, as we talk about the vision of our church, God, we want it to be centered upon the beautiful name of Jesus. And so, God, help us to delight in Jesus. Help me to delight in Jesus as I preach. God, we want to invest this time wisely, so I pray what is discussed here would matter a thousand years from now. And so, God, would you work in that way? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, over the years, there have been many different kinds of metaphors used to describe the church and the mission of the church. And these metaphors are vivid pictures that shape our expectation of what the church should be and really what our involvement in the church should be. And honestly, some of these metaphors have been helpful and some of these metaphors have not been so helpful. Even during my time here at College Park Church, we've used um, pretty much two uh, pretty much dominant metaphors to talk about uh, what the church should be and what the church should not be. The first metaphor that uh, we've used is, uh, is the church as a cruise liner. Now, we haven't encouraged the, us to think about the church in this way because viewing the church as kind of a cruise ship means that you want everyone on the ship to be comfortable. You want there to be something for everyone to be entertained. And the predominant question, if you view the church like this, is can this church improve my religious quality of life? that everything is almost uh, an insider focus. It's all about being comfortable, being happy, and it's personal preference driven. And so since I've been here, we've used a different metaphor that's a little bit more helpful, and that is the church as a battleship. Now, having a battleship mentality is, is very different than a, a cruise liner. If you view the church like this, you understand that the church has a mission and we need to orient everything about this ship or this church uh, towards this mission. So the culture and the roles of the soldiers on board is connected to a battle-oriented mission. And success is defined by really uh, storming enemy's territory and saving as many people as possible. However, within this metaphor, although helpful on one level, it implies that the church does all of the fighting that the programs and the services on Sunday can be seen as kind of the big guns that do battle. And so this morning, there's a third metaphor that I want to introduce to us this morning uh, that is talked about in a book called Gaining by Losing, Why the Future Belongs to Churches That Send. In this book, the book identifies that the better metaphor is the church as an aircraft carrier that the church needs to see itself as deploying planes to fight battles beyond the location of the aircraft carrier itself. Now, Pastor J.D. Greer, the author of this book, says this. He says that churches that want to prevail against the gates of hell must learn to see themselves like aircraft carriers, that members need to learn to share the gospel without being dependent upon the pastor or the church, they need to share the gospel in the community and start ministries and Bible studies, even other churches in places where the church is not. Now listen to this. Churches 
must become discipleship factories, sending agencies that equip their members to take the battle to the enemy. You see the difference there? There's a huge difference between viewing the church as a cruise liner and a battleship and even an aircraft carrier. See, this metaphor is more than just a helpful word picture. It is designed to help us think differently about what the church actually is and what our unique assignment here is in the Fishers community and what God has called you to do as it relates to the mission God has personally given you. Now, this is not a perfect metaphor by, by any means, but the point being is that we want our church to not be an end destination, but we want our church to be the means by which you live out the mission of Jesus wherever you are. That we want our church to be a discipleship factory, a sending agency that equips you to live out the gospel wherever you are for you to multiply the gospel at home and at work and in your neighborhood and at Starbucks and at the YMCA. And no matter where you are, you are multiplying more followers of Jesus through the power of the gospel. That the church on Sundays is not the only place to do that. And that is at the heart of what we mean by multiplication. Now, in order to do this, we're gonna need to understand what a gospel movement actually looks like. And so that's why we're in the book of Acts over the next several weeks. Because if you ever read the book of Acts before, you understand that the early church got it. Like they, they understood something about the church being more like an aircraft carrier that we need to learn. Like they understood what multiplication was all about. I think it's gonna be a helpful time for us as a church. And so the title of this eight-week sermon series is Multiply, a Gospel Movement in Acts chapters 1 through 11. We'll be walking through specific texts in these first 11 chapters for the purpose of answering three mission-critical questions. Just want to encourage you to write these down. I think that these are important. Number one, first question that this sermon series will help us answer is, what were the ingredients for the missional movements of the early church? What were the ingredients for the missional movements of the early church? We're gonna unpack a different elements or different uh, ingredient each week as we see from God's word. Question number two is, what unique mission is God calling College Park Fishers toward in 2018 and beyond? What unique mission is God calling College Park Fishers toward in 2018 and beyond? And then the third question is, what is is your spirit-empowered mission? What is God calling you to do with the gospel that is specifically tailored around your personality, your gifts, and your experience? I hope that you have some vibrant discussions about specifically that third question in your small group over the next couple of weeks and hoping that this series Uh, ministers to us. I want you to know that this is a really important time in the life of our church, not just because we're in a capital campaign trying to raise money for a permanent building, but I want this sermon series to help focus on what is most important. So I want you to know that having a permanent building is not the mission of the church. Like, that's not what we're about. But raising money to secure a permanent building, the the building will be a tool to help us accomplish what the mission of the church actually is. 
And so this sermon series is gonna help anchor us into the mission of Jesus and what he has for us as College Park Fishers. So I'm excited to, to dive into this. So let's look at the background first uh, of Acts, just some helpful things to know about this book since we're gonna be in here for the next uh, several weeks. I wanna start with just a question for you to, to start get the, the juices flowing. How do you personally view the book of Acts? Like what comes to mind when you think about this book? Maybe to put it differently, like if someone came up to you and asked you the question, what, what is the book of Acts all about? Like what would you respond with? Perhaps many of us would probably say something to the effect that Acts was kind of like a, it's like a history book of the early church that if you wanna know what the early church was like and, and how God moved after, his, after Jesus' ascension, just go to the book of Acts. And if you view the book like that, which I think is partly right, Luke provides a very helpful narrative in answering that question. Luke is the author of this book, written in about 70 to 80 AD. And the way that Luke wrote this, this was actually combined with the gospel of Luke. It was actually one volume. And the way that Luke writes this book is, this is a masterpiece. Like if you, if you read this, Dr. Luke is, is incredible as he's shaping this narrative about the early church. It's written colorfully with dramatic scenes and straightforward reporting. There are vigorous personalities and unforgettable characters throughout this book. And yet this book also teaches us some very important aspects of the Christian life that we learn about what the kingdom of God is all about. We learn about the spread of the gospel, the birth and the purpose of the early church. We learn about the inclusion of all nations, the role of the Holy Spirit and gifts that he gives to his people. We even see some specific examples of relational tension and disagreement. Yes, that happens even in the walls of the church. And we see some amazing examples of the palpable power of God that just causes you to just stand back in awe of who he is. And we see just so much more. You know, just a, a word of caution here as we move through this book, we're gonna have to do the hard work of distinguishing between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. This is gonna be tricky because not everything in Acts is meant to be a model for us to imitate, Okay, so for example, we don't cast lots for new leaders like what happens in chapter one, verses 12 through 26. Now, although the state of Virginia broke a tie for the Virginia State House this past week in this way, we, we don't practice that here at College Park Fishers. And so we are gonna to have to distinguish between description and prescription. In other words, what, what was meant for all churches at all times and all places and then what was just for the early church as the early church was getting started? It's not an easy question to answer. Now, even though this book is a history of the early church, I want you to know that this is so much more than just the history of the early church. The book of Acts is an invitation. But the way that this is written, and, and we know that the title's Acts, and some people think it's the Acts of the Apostles, as if once the apostles died, God wasn't at work anymore. I viewed this book, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, through the local church, that the Holy Spirit is still at work here and today. This book is an invitation. See, if you've read this book, you know that chapter 28, the last chapter, just kind of ends. Like, 
there's like a cliffhanger. Like there's no closure. There's no cute ribbon at the end to just kind of, you know, put this book away. No, it just, it just kind of ends. And we're meant to conclude that the Holy Spirit of God is still working out the mission of Jesus, something that we're gonna see in chapter one. And so my prayer and my hope is that, is that we would be like wooed into this invitation by the Spirit to live within the kingdom of God here in Fishers. That, that's my prayer, that's my hope, is that every week we would say yes to this invitation to walk by the Spirit of God within the kingdom of God here in this community. And I really believe if we do that, our lives are gonna be changed, our church is gonna be changed, our community, and I really believe the world will be impacted if we take what this book has to say seriously. So this morning, the first ingredient that we're gonna look at is vision. Vision. We're gonna look at these first 11 verses, and we're just gonna look at three aspects of Jesus here that Luke highlights that will shape what the vision of the church, really the vision of our church, what it should be. Okay, you guys ready? Here's number one. The resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. This impacts what the vision of the church should be. Now, the first five verses, we are told that Luke is writing to his friend Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is most likely a believer. He's a very uh, influential man, but needs some reassuring about the faith. And so Luke is writing to get, provide a brief summary of Jesus's activity post-resurrection and before his ascension back into heaven. That's what these first couple verses are all about. Now notice verse one, Luke provides a summary statement for really the whole book of Acts. He says that I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Okay, now that little phrase there sets the stage for the entire book of Acts. And as I was kind of looking at this, studying this, the word began like stuck out to me. I like circled it, highlighted it, because that's just an interesting word. Like began implies continuation. It's interesting because Jesus is still at work through his spirits. Like in other words, just let this thought sink in for a moment. Jesus still had work to do. Like during Jesus's earthly ministry, when he died, resurrected, ascended, he, he had more work to do and he did it through the spirit-empowered church. And so it's not as if the gospel of Luke, you have Jesus who's, who's doing the work of ministry and then you've got Acts where you have the church who's doing the work of ministry. That, that's, not, that's not it at all. But what we have here is Jesus is doing the work of ministry in the gospel of Luke through his fleshly body and then you have in the book of Acts, Jesus is still at work and he's still working in his body, but the body now is the local church. See, it's not this, here's Jesus and now it's our turn. No, it's Jesus is still at work in a similar way. He's just changed from his physical or, uh, earthly body to now the, the body of the local church. And so this book is written as an invitation for us to follow the spirit as God continues to be at work. Now, verse three, we learn that Jesus presented himself alive to them, referring to the apostles. This is after his death. This is after he suffered. And he was with them for 40 days, and he was speaking about the kingdom of God and tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. That'll be a spicy one, I'm sure. 
But during these 40 days, there are at least 10 different appearances that Jesus makes to people that we can kind of ascertain throughout the Gospels and through Acts. Now, why does Luke talk about the fact that Jesus appeared to people? Why is the resurrection so important as it relates to the vision of the church? Well, when you and I typically talk about the resurrection, it's almost always in terms of how it impacts us in the future. It's almost always has to do with the way that we inherit eternal life, something that impacts us after we die in the future, that we connect it to the death of Jesus because Jesus came and he died for us because we're all sinners and we deserve to be punished. So Jesus dies and then three days later, he is resurrected and now all who believe inherit eternal life. And all that's true, and yet that's not the way that Luke uses the word resurrection throughout the book of Acts. Luke uses the term and the notion of resurrection of how it impacts us in the present, in the here and now. See, according to Luke, the, the resurrection of Jesus released the full power of the kingdom of God. See, because the resurrection is true, the authority and the power and the rule of Jesus in the kingdom of God that he inaugurated during his earthly ministry is now effectively able to be lived out by his followers who have the spirit of God living within us. So the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is the means by which God's kingdom is actually launched on earth as it is in heaven. Now, have you ever come across uh, the verse in John chapter 14 that, uh, that, that left you with some confusion? It, it's the verse where Jesus is, is hanging out with his disciples and, and he tells them, whoever believes in me will do the same work that I have done. If you think about that and you're like, wow, that's, that's quite a statement from Jesus. Like, I, I wanna do the same work that he, that he did. And then Jesus takes it a step further and he says, indeed, he who believes in me will do even greater things than what I have done. And you read that and I've read that for years and I'm just like, I have no idea what that means. I'm gonna kind of move on. And it's, it's, it's a mind-blowing statement by Jesus, greater things than what he did? And what does Jesus mean by that? Well, I think it's, it's connected to this idea of the kingdom of God that his resurrection inaugurated. See, when Jesus lived out his earthly ministry, he was somewhat confined to one space and at one time. Jesus wasn't everywhere at once ministering to all kinds of people, one person really at a time in one location. But now that Jesus has died and he's resurrected and he has sent his Holy Spirit to those who believe in him, we now can live out the resurrected power of Jesus all over the world at all kinds of different times. See, we can continue on the works of Jesus in greater ways than what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, not because we're so great, but because that same resurrected power that Jesus lived with now lives in us as the Holy Spirit lives in and through us. This is a really big deal if you're a follower of Jesus. This idea of the kingdom of God is a dominant theme throughout the book of Acts, that Luke is trying to help us understand what is the relationship between the local church and the kingdom of God, and it is living through the spirit of God. 
Now, Scripture testifies that God is king and his kingship is universal, okay? Has no boundaries, no end. Psalm 103 talks about that. But the kingdom of God is, is manifested most clearly where his people recognize it and practice and do exactly what he tells us to do. Like we see that all throughout the Old Testament. Like we know that God rules everywhere, that his kingdom has no end, but something's a little bit more tangible when his people recognize that and live out the resurrected power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what we are called to do. That we are called to live under the Lordship of Christ in every arena of our lives, now here in the presence. Now, I think the reason why that's important to know is because as Luke is writing this narrative about how the early church should live and what the early church should do, Luke knows that Jesus is wanting to expand his kingdom. Luke knows that Jesus is going to explain his mission and the assignment for his believers, and it's gonna cost them everything. It's going to be a daunting assignment. And so what does Luke do before that? Luke highlights the resurrection of Jesus in order to stun us about how powerful King Jesus actually is. That for Luke, before he talks about this assignment, before he talks about the mission, he wants us as readers to be stunned by the greatness of Jesus. For our hearts to be filled with this awe about how great Jesus is. And Luke does that by saying, Jesus has conquered death. Jesus trampled over your enemy. Jesus broke the chains of sin and he has set his people free. Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. Jesus resurrects dead souls and gives them life again. He's, he's trying to help us see the endless power and might of Jesus in order to woo us into complete allegiance to King Jesus. And he does that because this mission that we're gonna talk about in a moment is beyond us. It, it's, it's unbelievably demanding. It's gonna demand everything from us. And so he's laying the foundation for both the vision that Jesus has for us and the book of Acts. Look, I just wanna challenge us today. We are just too familiar with the resurrection of Jesus. Like we might, we might get wowed by it during Easter, but this is a huge deal. Like, think about this for a moment. Jesus literally resurrected from the dead. Like, that actually happened. Like, death was not stronger than Jesus. Like, that is an amazing reality that, that even the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus, nor did death. Like, that is meant to stir something in us in such a way that as we read specifically verse eight, we say, sorry, we got Jesus on our team. We, we've got the one who, who has defeated death. He's, he's on our team and we're gonna win in the end. So look, as we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, like don't let the familiarity of it cause your heart to be callous because that is the key. That is the power that we actually live this out. And I would suspect that far too many of us are too familiar with it, causing us to live on our own power and not his. So what is this mission of Jesus? Well, verses six through eight identify what Jesus wants for the church. 
And if you read verses one through five, and if you're a follower of Jesus, or if you're reading this in the first century, you're probably wondering, now what? Okay, like we've been told that Jesus is alive. Now what are we to do? And so verse six tells us that the disciples are gathered together and they're with Jesus and they ask this question. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And you read that and if you're like me, your first reaction is, what? This, this is the question? Like after all that, that has taken place, you're gonna ask Jesus about the kingdom of, of Israel? Like, it, like that question like doesn't fit here. It's like detached from the mission of Jesus. Like what, what Luke has, has been doing in the first five verses is he's, he's building momentum. He's saying, look, Jesus has conquered death. Jesus is alive. He's showed himself to all kinds of different people. He's preached about the, the kingdom of God and, and the promise of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's momentum and inspiration and excitement and confidence, and now they're all together, and this is the question? Man, what, what provoked them to ask that question? That, that wouldn't be the question I would ask. And I, I think that they asked this question because the disciples here are still confused. Like Matthew 28 talks about how some doubted, and, and I think that the disciples here are lacking vision. See, the disciples, what they want is, is they want the comfort of Israel to rule and not the Roman Empire to rule. They want what is hardest in their life to be taken away. Like, they don't wanna live in fear anymore. They don't wanna live under the Roman Empire. They want Jesus to take away their hardest trial. See, the disciples here, they, they don't have the long view in mind. They, they don't have the, the type of vision that is needed in order for a gospel movement at this point in time. And I love how Jesus responds. He's so, he's so tender. I mean, he, he is so tender when we doubt, when we're confused, when we're lacking vision. He, look at how he responds. He says, look, the Father knows that answer. Like, don't be, don't be caught up with that. And look, we, we know, looking back, we know that the gospel in the early church really spread most effectively, like it went crazy because Rome was in power, because of the persecution, because of the oppression, the gospel spread. And that happens all throughout church history. Whenever there's persecution, that's when the gospel and the church spreads. And so what was hardest for them, their trial, God actually used for the advancement of, of the gospel. And yet, verse six, let's spend a couple of minutes with this because you know, if, if we were really honest this morning, we, we can fall into this mindset, can't we? This mindset of verse six where we believe in Jesus, we love the resurrection, we love the kingdom of God, but man, don't we ask questions like verse six? Don't we say things like, Lord, will you at this time take away my trial? Lord, will you at this time answer this question that you've left unanswered for years? Lord, will you at this time take away what is hardest in my life? Man, don't we ask those questions? I, I know I have. Man, I've gone through seasons of my life, trials and difficulties where I've been so focused on verse six that I miss verse eight. I've been so focused on God, take away this pain, answer this question that I have missed the mission of Jesus. And look, part of the reason why we're in this book is because we can fall into this same mindset. Like these early disciples, they're confused. 
they're distracted, they're, they're lacking vision, they believe in Jesus. And look, we can fall right into that same mindset of asking verse six questions. And so we need exactly what Jesus provides to them in response. Notice what Jesus gives them. He gives them exactly what they need. He, he gives them vision and he gives them clarity. Look at verse eight with me. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now that sounds like good news to us. That sounds like some vision and some clarity, but Jesus starts off here with their response and he tells them to wait. Tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Now, I, I know there were some type A personalities that part of that group of the early, early disciples. I'm sure there's some type A personalities who are thinking to themselves like, no, no, Jesus, we can't wait here. Like, people are dying. We need to get organized. We need to launch some ministries. We need to attend some leadership conferences. Like, we need to get going here. And yet Jesus has his own timing, tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit because Jesus is trying to show them this is not something they can do for him, but this is something that Jesus wants to do through them. See, what Jesus wants them to understand is the big picture. He wants them to understand the vision that he has for the church. I've got a personal love-hate relationship with puzzles, and I love them right now because <clears throat> my four-year-old Ellie loves them right now, and you know, I think we're at the 25-piece puzzle mark right now, and, and I think we started with five or 15, and, and I'm, I'm noticing this trajectory that we're headed towards the 1,000-piece puzzle, which I do not like at all, and so I'm in this love-hate relationship with them. And I'm just curious, by show of hands, I, I'm very curious, who loves the 1,000-piece puzzles? Ra raise your hand. Be proud about this. Okay, so, so you guys are the ones who have the patience. So if I need to come to you, I can come to you for help about how to get through those. But for me, I've got this, this love-hate relationship with them because one of the most frustrating experiences of my life as it relates to puzzles happened in high school where I was on this date with this girl. Now, I, I can feel Lindsay's eyes here in the front row, and I know that I've got like one opportunity, only one time that I can share a story or an illustration about a previous relationship, so I'm going for it right now, and, uh, and you should be, you're like, okay, this better be good, so I ho hope it's helpful. So, this won't be too painful. Okay, so I'm on this date with this girl, and, and she's like, you know, I, I think we should do a puzzle together. I think that'd be fun, you know, we could work on something together and, uh, you know, talk while we do it. And I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. I like this girl. I get to spend time with her. Let's do this puzzle. And so we, we, we're, we're connecting and, and talking. And she goes, you know what? I know that you're competitive, really competitive. And so let's do two puzzles. You do one and I'll do the other. And let's race to see who will, who will win. And I'm like, oh, okay. You, this is my love language. You, you, got, you got a deal here. So, so we've got these two puzzles. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I really like this girl. Like, if we race, this date is going to be over way sooner than I want it to, right? Because I'm going to win in like two minutes. So, so I tell her, you know what? Let's, let's throw, throw in another aspect to this. How about we can only look at the, the big picture of the puzzle on the box once, and then we have to move the boxes and hide them, okay? And she's like, uh, okay, it's a little crazy. Like, okay, let's do it though. And so we're trying to 
you know, she's working on her puzzle, I'm working on mine, and we're trying to complete these puzzles without the big picture that's on the box. And I don't know if you've ever done that before, but it is incredibly frustrating. Like, there is, there's activity going on, like we're busy, we're, we're trying to fit these together, and yet we just gave up after some time and grabbed some ice cream because we could not complete that, that puzzle. We couldn't do the mission of the activity. And look, the reason why I share that with you is because the same is true in the church. Like we can be so busy and, and active doing all kinds of things, but without understanding the big picture of the church, the vision of the church, we're gonna end in frustration. We're gonna not know what the big picture is, what, what we're trying to do as, as God's church here in the Fishers community. And so what is the big picture of College Park Fishers? Like what is, what is our vision? Why, why does God have us here in this community at this time? Maybe to put it differently, I want, just, just want you to fast forward maybe 10 years from now. And let's say it's, it's 2028, and, and let's say that you're at Starbucks, and someone comes up to you, and, and, and you strike up a conversation, and you start talking about Jesus or about church, and, and, and they, they've heard that College Park Church is, is a healthy, thriving, influential church. And so they ask you, hey, what, what makes College Park Fisher so healthy? How would you answer that question? Like the answer to that question like impacts what the vision of our church should be. And the reality is, is you know, I'm not reading any minds right now, but I'm sure we've got 40 or 50 different answers in this room. Some people are thinking a little bit of this, maybe a little bit of that, but what if we all thought about the same thing? What if the answer to that question and the vision of our church, what if we are so aligned with clarity that we're investing all of our energy, all of our time headed towards the same vision? Imagine how influential, how healthy and how thriving College Park Fishers would be. So what is the vision of our church? Well, the vision of our church is grounded in chapter one, verse eight, that the vision of our church has everything to do with this idea of multiplication. The vision of our church, maybe in a sentence, is we wanna follow the Spirit's leading to multiply the gospel deep in our lives and have the gospel be multiplied wide throughout the world. That's the vision of our church. We want the gospel to be multiplied so deep in our bones that we are so in love with Jesus and what he has done for us that the gospel is maturing us, the gospel is mobilizing us to the point where we are multiplying the gospel in our community, in our city, and around the world. That, that's the vision in a couple of sentences of our church. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here in this passage. In chapter one, verse eight, he calls us to be his witnesses no matter where we are. And a witness, as you know, is someone who testifies about something that is true based on their experience or based on what they have seen. And so for us, as Jesus' witnesses and as his followers, we've been rescued by Jesus. We've experienced his love and his grace. And so we are called to share that with other people. That's what it means to multiply the, excuse me, to multiply the gospel. 
But Jesus not only tells us what to do, but in verse eight, he tells us where to do this. Now, this is really, really helpful. He says to be witnesses, and for the early apostles here, it was Jerusalem, which was right where they were, so their immediate community. Then Judea and Samaria, so the surrounding community just outside of Jerusalem. And then third, the ends of the earth. Like this is, this is Jesus's strategy that he lays out for accomplishing his mission. And so the church, I believe our church, needs to answer three critical questions related to these three areas. Question number one, related to our Jerusalem, who are the people near me every day that needs to believe the gospel and live out the gospel? That's your Jerusalem. Secondly, Judea and Samaria. How do I reach, how do we reach people around me and people that are different than me? And then thirdly here, the ends of the earth. What is my role in reaching people who have never heard the name of Jesus? And so at College Park Fishers, maybe we can take it one step deeper here. We think of answering those questions as a way that shapes the way that we wanna live out this idea of multiplication. So make it a little bit more personal for us. So the first level, our Jerusalem, personal. How can you share the gospel with people near you and how can you help other people who are saved be matured in the gospel? So the answer to that question, that's your Jerusalem, okay? Now, the next one, local, how can we take the gospel to our surrounding community throughout Indianapolis, mainly through church planting? Okay, that's church planting is something that we want to do down the road because we believe in church planning, that, that there are areas even within Hamilton County or this northeast part of Indianapolis that, that needs more gospel-centered churches. And so that's a question that we'll have to answer down the road. And then number three, relating to global, how can unreached people be reached with the gospel? And that relates to our global outreach strategy. Look, I want you to know that this is more than just simply an outreach program, but this is a a biblical strategy for a balanced spread of the gospel. And notice, look, this is how the gospel was, was multiplied in the first century, and this is how the Holy Spirit is still at work here today in the local church. And so let's, let me just read chapter one, verse eight, and I, I wanna personalize this verse for us. This is, this is the vision, I believe, the vision that Jesus has for our church. I'm gonna insert our church name here. It says, but you, College Park Fishers, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Fishers and in Hamilton County and Indianapolis and to unreached people groups to the ends of the earth. Look, that, that's our vision. That's Jesus's vision, we believe, that he has for College Park Fishers. And notice, these are the arenas which we are to be sent that if College Park Fishers is an aircraft carrier, these are the battlefields that we want to deploy you to. And so the, the measure of success for our church is not being like the biggest church on the block or our weekly church attendance. Like that's a factor, but the measure of success for our church is are we multiplying the gospel with people around us and people in our city and around the world? Like that, that's our scorecard for our church. And so like every aspect of the church is meant to be part of that mission of multiplication. Every small group, every Bible study, every 
program and ministry, every service is meant to be part of this mission of multiplying. And so our vision is we wanna follow the Spirit's leading to multiply the gospel deep in our lives and multiply the gospel wide throughout the world. That we want a gospel movement to occur in our Jerusalem, in our Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know, it's interesting here as you look at even the first couple chapters in Acts that the mission came first and then the church. If you notice this, the church doesn't come until chapter two of Acts. The, The mission that Jesus has came first. So it's not that God had his church and he's trying to think of some, some sort of mission for the church. No, no, God had a mission and he came up with the church in order to accomplish that mission. So like movements move and the gospel is multiplied and we wanna be a part of that in this part of the world. So Jesus's mission becomes our vision. Now the couple of minutes left that we have together, I wanna talk briefly about the ascension of Jesus in these last couple of verses. I think these are helpful for us to understand the vision of Jesus and, and kind of maybe what we're all feeling in this moment. So when you look at verses nine through 11, specifically at verse nine, it's a terrifying verse right there. Like when you look at it, you read it, you're, you're thinking to yourself, man, those disciples must have been filled with fear. Like they're, they just received this assignment, this mission from Jesus. It's incredibly daunting. And then Jesus pieces out. He's like, see ya. Like, and he goes up into the heavens. Like, like imagine if you, if you were there. Like imagine the fear, just feeling overwhelmed. And I'm, I'm sure as Matthew 28, some even doubted. Look, I don't wanna belabor this point, but just to be transparent with you this morning, that, that resonates with me today. Like, like verse nine, like what they must have felt like during this season as a young pastor, like I, I feel that. Like raising money for a permanent building, a multi-million dollar project, trying to figure out chapter one, verse eight and how to contextualize what that means for us. Like that's a daunting task. And, and so I, I can, I can relate to maybe what the disciples were going through here. And yet, verse 11, man, verse 11 has ministered to me so much over the last couple of months. Verse 11, again, you've got these disciples who are like looking up at the sky as Jesus ascends into heaven, like almost wanting Jesus to come back down. And then you've got these two men who are dressed in all white, most likely angels, and they say this to them. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Look, that ministered to me because in other words, what they are saying is why do you stand there paralyzed with fear? Why do you stand there thinking about your inadequacies and, and your shortcomings when this is all about Jesus? That's what they're saying here, that this is all about Jesus, not about your weaknesses or about the task and how you feel inadequate. This is all about King Jesus who has ascended and he's at the right hand of the Father and he is coming back again and that should create a sense of urgency for us. And so for us as a church, I know we're in a a season that's gonna stretch us and it's gonna demand 100% participation But look, I don't want two angels to stand up here on stage in a couple of weeks and to say, men and women of College Park Fishers, why do you stand there in fear, lacking vision? Like, I don't want that for our church. 
Look, I'm sure that they would say, look, you don't have time to stand in fear. You don't have time to, to not be all in with the mission of Jesus. You've got to get to work now because Jesus is coming back again. See, the ascension of Jesus isn't just some abstract theology. The ascension of Jesus implies that he is coming back and that should create a type of motivation and a sense of urgency for taking verse eight seriously in how we live out our lives. And so look, we, we've got a big project ahead of us. We've got this amazing mission for us, but hear the word of the Lord speak to us today that we have King Jesus on our side, and he's been clear about the mission that he has for the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Not because we've got this amazing strategy, but because Jesus and the spirit of Jesus lives inside of us, and we have this resurrected power, and we got to get to work. And that is the mission and the vision of our church. So just to close here, I just wanna just create some space of reflection. Just wanna give you some, some time to digest all that, all that has been shared. So just maybe close your eyes for a moment here. I just wanna read a couple of questions just to help you process uh, what has been shared. A couple of questions just to think about. These are questions burning on my heart but why has God placed College Park Fishers in the city of Fishers? Why has he chosen us to be together for this moment in church history? And what is God calling us to do in 2018 to reach more people with the saving power of Jesus? Let's move into the more personal level here. A couple of questions for you. Are you here today, not a believer, not all in with the gospel? And you're hearing about Jesus's mission and you're saying to yourself, I want that. Can I just encourage you to place your faith in Jesus even in this moment, cry out to him for salvation. And if you wanna learn more about what that means, just ask the person next to you about what it means to follow Jesus after our time. If you are a follower of Jesus, where has God providentially placed you? How has God uniquely gifted you? How has he wired you? Where does he have you to multiply the gospel? Oh God, we thank you for Acts chapter one. We thank you that this is more than just a history book of the early church. This is an invitation that we say yes to. God, we thank you for this mission that is beyond us. It exceeds our own resources and our own talent and our own charisma. We are fully dependent upon you to live this out. God, I pray that you would help us understand more about this, this power through the spirit that lives inside of us that is not okay with complacency. And God, I pray that you would do so much more than what we could ever dream, ask, or imagine. And God, that starts with our own hearts of the gospel being multiplied deep in our own bones. So God, move in that way, we pray in Christ's name.